was last uh, Wednesday, Valentine's Day. Once again, our nation was shaken by another senseless act of violence down in Parkland, Florida. And uh, I know like my daughter, uh, when she went back to high school the next day or the day after that, she asked her teacher, you know, like, what, what's the plan if that happens here? And, uh, you know, it's scary, scary stuff. But this morning as I was preparing, I just had it on my heart, like a lot of people are going to be going to church this morning down in Florida, down in Parkland. And uh, Christians in the area have a big responsibility this Sunday to bring the love of Christ to people who maybe are even questioning like what's going on with God I mean is God if God is good why does this stuff happen and all those hard questions so I thought we would just take a few minutes just now to pray to the Lord for our country pray for those students pray for the people of the community of Parkland and uh, see where the spirit leads us okay Lord, um, we do pause a moment here in the middle of our service, and we want to just um, lift up, first of all, our brothers and sisters in Florida that um, are going to church this morning, and they're seeing people there, and no doubt the churches in the area are trying to figure out how to minister to people, how to help people get through this hardship how to bring your love and your mercy to them when 17 families are suffering loss, the loss of their senseless loss of their loved one. Still others are wrestling with their loved ones who are still in the hospital after that absolute evil that took place. So we lift them up to you, Lord. We lift up the families. We lift up the churches in the area, Lord, just help them to be ministers of your spirit. Help them to be conduits of your grace and mercy in the midst of tragedy. And Lord, um, think of those students, those high school students, what they went through. on which they stand. We just lift up to you our fellow Americans there and people that are just impacted by this terrible event. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. By the way, uh, last week I gave you a little warning on this message that uh, if you have kids, given the content, what we're going to talk about, uh, you may want to um, allow them to go to promised land today, let's just say. Uh, we're going to talk about sin. And sometimes when we talk about sin, uh, you may not want to have your little ones listening in. So now's the time, but uh, you're the parent, you're the guardian, you can do with your children whatever you want to do with them as you lead them in this moment. So uh, this morning, and I got in here, people noticed there's... Um, 
There's something on a stage that looks a little gnarly, shall we say. And they were like, what's going on up here? You know, you're trying to keep the young whippersnappers off the stage? Is that what you're doing? They didn't actually say that. I, I just said that. <clears throat> well, why is this barbed wire up here, you know? What, are you going to have farm animals up on stage? What's the deal with this? Shouldn't have farm animals in church, should we? The first service when I did that, some guy sitting right over here, he went, I don't see why not. <laughs> this barbed wire, this twisted, mangled mess is to illustrate sin, like I said. How twisted and thorny sin really is. I think in America today, uh, you know, sin, sure. I mean, sin's bad, and there's some sins that are real bad. You know, like what happened on Valentine's Day, like we just prayed for. Sure, that's really bad stuff. But generally speaking, I mean, why do we have to be too worried about sin? It's really not all that bad. And yet this morning, we're going to see that when we enter into the dark forest of desire, or the allure of indulging, or pursuing our lustful appetites, it can only lead to entanglement. It can only lead to being ensnared and all twisted up in this thing called sin. We're in this series entitled The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. It's starring David, of course, if you've been with us. And um, all along in this series, we've seen David as the good. All this good stuff about David. And this morning, we're going to be introduced to, let's just say, the bad and the ugly of David. And there was definitely that in his life. We're going to look at a moment in David's life a specific event that took place. It was pivotal for him. It was one night where he got ensnared in sin. David sinned with a woman named Bathsheba. As we look into just how twisted sin really is, I heard it said along the way that, you know, Christians don't talk enough about sin. Or, you know, churches, they don't go to the dark places of people's hearts. Why don't they go there more often? Well, I, I hate to be a downer this morning. And it's like, I don't really enjoy going there, but we're going to go there together. Uh, I think it's important to have a good grasp as to why sin is so bad. And so this morning, we're going to continue to get to know David, and as we do, we're going to see six ways in which sin is so twisted. How sin is so twisted. How it's so bad. And then when we establish just how bad sin is, I'm hoping that we'll end with, because of seeing how bad it is, we'll see just how good how right, how pure, how wonderful the Lord Jesus is. So let's begin 
to talk about how twisted sin is. First of all, sin is so twisted because it snags us when we least expect it. It snags us when we least expect it. You can be walking up close to barbed wire, and if you're not kind of watching it, all of a sudden, whoop, oh, it kind of snags you. You know, it kind of grabs a hold of you. Uh, go with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible handy, that's fine. Uh, I'll have it up here on the screen, but many people like to follow along either on their smartphone or tablet or in their good old-fashioned paper Bible like I got. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. Then it happened in the spring. Oh, let's just stop there a moment. Ah, the spring. Aren't you, like, really looking forward to spring? I mean, at this time of the winter, it's like we, I saw a squirrel running. I'm like, yeah, that's spring. I'm counting that as spring. He's done sleeping. We're in spring. That's just how I feel. You know, in the spring, you know, the flowers are blossoming. Everything's pretty. Uh, Love is in the air, right? Not just love. Look what happens here. And it happened in the spring at the time when, here's what happens back in David's day, when kings go out to battle. That David sent Joab and his servant with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now, uh, where is this place called Rabbah, where the Ammonites hung out? Uh, of course, I love to show you maps, so let me show you a quick quick map here. Uh, you'll see the Dead Sea here and the Sea of Galilee there. Jerusalem's right here. You go 50 miles, almost due east, and you have the town of Rabbah, where the Ammonites were, e uh, enemies, of course, of Israel. Now, at this time, David had been king for about 20 years. So David's about 50 years old at this time, and uh, he's married. Matter of fact, he's like really married. Like he has at least six wives and uh, many more concubines. And by the way, uh, this was totally against what God said the king of Israel was to have. You can look it up on your own. I think it's Deuteronomy 17 verses 14 through 17, where God said he's going to place a king over Israel, but he's not to have multiple wives. But you know, everybody back then, kings back then, everybody had multiple wives, kings, you know, could afford it. And so David just kind of went in step with society and had his own multiple wives. And, uh, and so uh, David stays back in Jerusalem. Again, not uncommon for the king to send out his armies and he's just going to hang back. He's got many more things that he can focus on being king. And, and yet, hanging back, well, that's when things began to get twisted. Look at verse 2. Now when evening came, by the way, I think it's better understood as the English Standard Version puts it, as late afternoon happened, uh, David had a nap in the afternoon. It was normal. And he'd get up in the afternoon, late afternoon, and arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. Now, if you've been tracking with us, we found out that David is a man of passion, great passion. Uh, it's what inspired him to write so many of the psalms that we have. He was in incredibly handsome, uh, a very good-looking guy. And he ultimately, as the king, had access to anything he, he wanted. Uh, this left him intoxicated for more. Like I highlighted, David had literally a harem of women. And yet, I think that icon of the 1980s 
described David to a T. You might remember, those of you who, you know, lived in the great 80s, like when I, you know, was in high school. Yeah, you too, Mary, I know. Just signed 1980s. Perfect. Yep, got it. Yep. Uh, one of the greats of our era was good old Huey Lewis. Remember Huey Lewis in the news? Oh, yeah. All the young ones, like, all of us old folks, <laughs> I like you. He sang a great song, and then the lyric of that song was, I want a new drug. And the whole theme of the song is, I want a new fix, you know. I want a new experience. I've got a lot, I've, I've been on, on things that, you know, are great, but I want something new, something exciting. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a great American theologian. He died in 1960, and when he spoke about sexual sin, I think he had a wonderful line that I think we should log in our brains when we think about the temptation of sexual sin. He put it this way, it's the lure of strange flesh. The lure of strange flesh. Ooh, I just want something new. This is what was tempting David. And then David was warned, however, a clear warning. Look at verse 3. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, one of his servants said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, when somebody inquires about a woman like a king, uh, when you're explore, expre, explaining who this woman is, uh, you would normally attach her to her father, that she is the daughter of this man, Eliam. But the servant went one step further and actually attached her identity to her husband as well, Uriah the Hittite. It was a clear warning to David, stay away. This is not the place you want to go. Don't, don't do it, because if you go after that desire, you're getting a little bit close, and it, you're going to get snagged. You're going to get hooked. If you get too close to the barbed wire, we'll get snagged. And if we don't unhook quickly and keep our distance, no doubt we're going to get all wrapped up in it. Sin is so twisted. It's so twisted, secondly, that it warps our thinking. It warps our thinking. We don't think straight when sin has got us hooked. Look at verse 4. David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. Now, I see two things that are quite warped thinking in this in just this single verse. Let me take the second one first. Notice what it says here. It says, And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness. This is a direct connection to Leviticus 15, 18. The law said that when a man and a woman had intercourse, they would be unclean until dark. And yet, for the woman to be cleansed, she would have to bathe. To be purified, she'd have to bathe. And so, what Bathsheba did was, listen, okay, we, we did this wrong. We, we committed adultery. We broke the law, clearly. But now I want to keep the law. <laughs> now I think I should purify myself. I should bathe, and then I'll stay with you, David, until dark, and then I'll go home. And David, no doubt, was in on it. So what makes it so twisted is like, well, I'm going to break the law, but then I want to keep the law. Like, I, I want to not do, keep the law here, but then I'm going to keep it there. It's just, it's just warped thinking. It's so twisted. 
Another way that maybe is a little bit more clear to us is right at the beginning there of verse 4. Notice it says, David sent messengers and took her. The king took her. I want her, go get her for me. A man in a power position felt compelled to have Bathsheba for himself. Did you get that? A man in a power position felt compelled to have Bathsheba for himself. Sound relevant to today? It's all over the place. Hashtag Me Too movement. Women all across America are coming out and saying, listen, we want to speak out against sexual harassment and sexual violence against women and sexual abuse against them. We see it in Hollywood. We've seen it in politics. We've seen it in in the military, in the music industry. (laughs) The sickness of that guy in Michigan with the young girls, the gymnasts, uh, just sick. Seen it in the workplace. Treating women as objects to use is so warped. It's so twisted. David should have cared for her as a person. He should have seen her as one that God has given to this world to offer wonderful contributions to our world. He should have known her in the purity of being the wife of Uriah the Hittite. But instead, his thoughts were warped and his actions followed. Sin is so twisted, it warps our thinking. Third, sin is so twisted, it paralyzes us in fear. When we're entangled in sin, it's almost like we'd rather stay entangled than try to get out because it's kind of scary getting out of it. I think that's what was, began to happen here with David. Look at verse 5. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Oh boy, <laughs> whoopsie, whoopsie daisy, now we're busted. Now, now what are we going to do? You know, there is pleasure that sin offers. It's true. But we live with the consequences the rest of our lives. I believe this scared David to death. I think he was extremely afraid. I mean, David knew the law. David knew what the law said. This is Leviticus 20.10. Look at what the law says. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. That's how serious this law-breaking was. And David knew it. And I would imagine that David was thinking, okay, even if they show me mercy, even if they show me mercy, confession is like sticking my neck out on a chopping block and saying, have at it. You can take my position away. You can vehemently hate me if I confess. You you may never trust me again if I confess. I might be the most despised 
lonely, desolate person on the planet Earth if I confess. The life I know will probably be completely destroyed if I confess. David didn't want to take that risk. It would be like letting the cat out of the bag. Only when he opened the bag, it's not just a little kitten, it's like a lion. No, it's worse. He opens the bag and a dragon pops out and eats him. That's the feeling he was getting, paralyzed by fear. Oh no, what are we going to do? You know, all that's true about confession. Confession is a huge risk. However, confession opens the door to mercy. Confession is the gateway to forgiveness. Confession is the ointment that starts the healing. True, honest, humble confession is the only path to restoration. It's the only path to healing and wholeness again. Confession unwinds the twistedness of sin. And sin is so twisted. Fourth, it's so twisted it deceives by deceiving. Sin is so twisted, it deceives by deceiving. There's just deception after deception. Look at how the deception begins here in verse 6. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. Now remember, Joab's the commander of David's army. Uriah's the husband of Bathsheba. When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab, and the people, and the state of the war. (laughs) Wait a minute. That is so phony. David could care less about the state of the war when he brought Uriah in. That's not why he brought him there. He brought him there to deceive him. He brought him there to make a cover-up. Look at verse 7. I'm sorry, verse 8. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. By the the, the way, that phrase, wash your feet, that could mean uh, go and sleep with your wife, but it could also mean just go to your wife and find refreshment, whatever. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. Oh, isn't that nice? Send a present with him. Here, bring that to your wife. I'm sure she'll love it. Uh, But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Now, when they told David, saying Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you come from a journey? Why why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab, the commander, and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. It just doesn't seem right for me to do that. That that just wouldn't be right. Right. Wait, 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 wait. You didn't go to your wife? Wait, you were off at war. I bring you home. I know it's a 50-mile journey. I bring you home. 
you haven't seen your wife in a while, and you don't go and be with your wife? Quit being so righteous, Uriah. Quit being so, you know, holier than thou. That's what's going on in David's mind. Then he's thinking, all right, well, it's time to break down the inhibitions. It's time to remove the restraints. Look at verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, Stay here today also, and tomorrow I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now, now David called him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And in the evening, he, Uriah, went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants. He didn't go home again. He did not go down to his house. David, man, I want to get away with this. I want to get away with my sin. I want to deceive Uriah by getting him to be with his wife. But nothing seems to be going according to plan. When I was uh, little, when I was young, I daydreamed a lot. I loved to just like lay in the grass and look up at the clouds and, you know, I'd picture animals in the clouds or I'd look up in the trees and watch birds kind of, you know, flitting along in the trees. I'd, I'd just lay there for like hours. I remember one time I was laying on our picnic bench, and um, as I'm laying flat on my back on the picnic bench, I'm looking up at the tree, and the leaves are just fluttering in the sunlight, warm summer day. And I don't know why, I decided to look over underneath the picnic table that was like right there, you know. And as I look under the picnic table, there is this beautifully formed spider web. I mean, it was perfect, you know? Perfect round circle, just a beautiful looking spider web, but the spider was nowhere to be found. And I just was like admiring the architecture of the spider web when lo and behold, a fly, whoop, like gets right into the web, just flying along, boom, he just hits that web and he stopped. And, you know, I'm a daydreamer. I'm thinking, like, what's going on? And the fly, as soon as he hit it, he, like, stopped. And I, I'm starting to put words in the fly's little mouth, you know, like, what, 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 I'm flying, what happened, you know? And he's, like, stuck in his mind in midair. And then he tries to get away, you know? It's like, he's like, he can't, you know? He's like, and he's, like, back and forth and back and forth. And I didn't see the spider until that fly started making a bit of commotion on the web. And sure enough, out from nowhere, and there's a fly and then the fly no doubt through his thousand eyes sees the spider the spider comes up and kind of gets close and feeling around that fly's kind of going all of a sudden the spider just goes and before you know it the back legs of that spider are going and he starts at the bottom of the fly, and before you know it, the bottom of that fly is like, you know, wrapped up in his web. And then, and then he's kind of flying, and then before you know it, his wings are underneath, and that spider just keeps wrapping up and wrapping up and wrapping up. And before you know it, the fly's like, I'm watching this whole thing, totally, you know, amazed by it. Before you know it, that fly is literally cocooned in that spider's web. And I thought, that was like one of the coolest things that I just spent an hour watching. It was so incredible. You ever hear the phrase, the web of deception? I actually think that's where that came from. You get kind of caught up. 
you know, and it starts, you kind of fly into the web by starting by lying to ourselves, deceiving ourselves. This is no big deal, you know? This is a little bit of fun. Just to, yeah, it's, it'll be fine. Nothing to worry about. This pleasure is worth it. And then we kind of get stuck. And we start lying to others. Start deceiving others. Start to try and cover it up by one form or another. It's so deceptive. Sin is so twisted. Well, fifth, sin is so twisted because it kills. It does. Sin kills. It kills trust. It kills relationships. It kills love. And for David, he was so caught up in it, he killed Uriah. Look at verse 14. Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. Hold, that is so twisted. Uriah, come here. I've got a letter that you need to deliver to Joab. Sealed letter, so Uriah's not going to read it. Bring this over to Joab. Uriah obeys his king, brings the letter to Joab. Unbeknownst to him, it's his death warrant. Verse 16, so it was as Joab kept watch on the city that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men, the enemy. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab. Some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. He charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king, and if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, Why did you go excuse me, so, so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? I mean, who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he would die in Thebes? By the way, Judges 9, you can read, for, read about it yourself. Why did you go so near the wall? In other words, listen, I mean, any military officer with any military knowledge of war knows that you don't put your men like sitting ducks. Why would you do that? Well, if David is upset about that, here's what I want you to tell him. End of verse 21. Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall. So some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it, and so encourage him. David's not upset at all. He's not angry. He's not sad that not only did Uriah die, but others of his 
of his soldiers died. He doesn't show any remorse for that at all. Go encourage Joab. It'll be fine. This is what it's all about. (laughs) I picture David like, the deed is done. Good, now I don't have to deal with that anymore. No, no. That never happens. That never happens. Sin is deadly. And David's life would never be the same after that. His security, his peace, his relational harmony with others was killed by the twistedness of sin. That's what sin does, by the way. <laughs> sin, sin seems so enticing, you know? <laughs> a bit, maybe a bit... That's not really going to hurt you. Kind of harmless. You don't have to take it too seriously. And then when sin's got you, it turns on you. It's how it happens. When I was a senior in high school, I had a unique pet. I named her Elizabeth. Elizabeth was a raccoon. I loved Elizabeth. She was such a cuddly little cute thing when I first got her. You know, she's got that cute little mask and she just, you know, she kind of pats with her hands. And as she got bigger, she was able, I could literally just stand there and she'd crawl right up me and then like lay across my shoulders, you know. And I mean, I had like my own fur, you know, although she was alive. And she would just look at me and she'd kind of pat me with her hands and, she'd, and we would just have a ball. I mean, Elizabeth was funny and, and she was just great. Now, my older brother, Todd, I have one older brother, his name is Todd. Uh, years before, he had a raccoon as well. And he named his raccoon R.A. Coon. And we just called him R.A. And when R.A. was about two years old, uh, we had to release R.A. into the wilderness because he got a little grumpy. Uh, Elizabeth, around 18 months, around a year and a half old, she started getting a little bit grumpy. And my brother was like, listen, we gotta, I don't think we can keep Elizabeth anymore. Now, I felt sad about it, but, you know, we'd been down this road. We knew what, what to expect, and so we had to... Let Elizabeth go as well. Reminds me of a story, a true story from a retired zookeeper. His name was Gary Richmond. Gary Richmond had a friend, a daughter of his friends, and her name was Julie. Julie was a high school student. And Julie also had a raccoon, and she named her raccoon Bandit, which makes sense, you know, the mask. And, uh, and Gary wanted to warn Julie about what happens with raccoons. It's a fact that at about 24 months, right around there, raccoons go through a major change. They can be really warm, really cuddly, but all of a sudden the wild in them comes out. (laughs) All of a sudden they become unpredictable and they become mean. Now Julie, when he's telling her this, she's, you know, she's listening politely, but high school student, you know, this guy doesn't know anything. Who cares if he's a zookeeper, you know, whatever. And, uh, and she said, well, not, not Bandit and me. I mean, Bandit and me, we have a, we're tight. I mean, he, we're just, we just got a great connection. And she didn't heed the warnings. True story. Three months later, Gary went to the hospital to visit Julie, who had just undergone plastic surgery for lacerations in her face. Bandit had turned on her. She should have heeded the warnings. She should have let Bandit 
go out into the wilderness. Well, that's what sin does. Seems so nice. And then it turns on us. Like, like take Rob, for instance. Fictional person I'm making up, but it's a true-to-life story. Rob got his hands on some prescription drugs. And he's seen what it does to some people, but not, not him. I mean, he, he can handle it. He can, he's okay with it. You know, he'll, he'll make sure he doesn't, you know, go overboard, let's say, with the dosages. Six months later, Rob was in the hospital for ODing. Fortunately, he didn't die, but, but Rob spent two months recovering and for the rest of his life had brain damage. Or, or take, take Cindy. Cindy, 17 years old, high school, she's got a new boyfriend, pretty excited about him. <laughs> Mom and Dad had a little sit-down with Cindy, you know. Um, we've heard about Jim. And Jim, uh, I'm not sure that we're happy with you dating Jim. Oh, Mom, Dad, it's different with me. Jim and I, we're in love. We're in love. It's great. We love each other. And he's, he's really, really good to me. Well, now Cindy's 22. It's five years later. Still living with Mom and Dad. Oh, and her little boy, who just turned five also. His dad, her old boyfriend, is out of the picture. He's gone. Or take a man named David. Oh, it's just a one-night bit of fun. Nobody's going to get hurt. It's no big deal. And then he got entangled. And now there's a kid on the way. And he had Uriah the Hittite killed. Yeah, so enticing. Seems so harmless. Not that serious. But sin will turn on us every time. Well, one more way in which sin is so twisted. Sin is twisted because it is evil. It's evil. Look at verse 26. Now, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. And then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done, get this, was evil in the sight of the Lord. Ethically wicked in God's eyes. What we saw this past Wednesday on Valentine's Day in Parkland, Florida, was evil on display. I watched on Twitter uh, high school students cowering in the corners of their classrooms, videotaping as bullets were whizzing by them. Evil. And what David did was evil. Listen to these words, these sobering words in James chapter 2 and verse 10. 
It says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law, of the whole law. David did both, by the way. He committed adultery and he committed murder. And if we break just one law, and by the way, there are 613 laws written in the Old Testament. If we break one, it's as if we've broken the whole law. We're guilty. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 3.23. He said, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are caught up in the twistedness of sin. He said a few verses earlier in Romans 3.10, There is none righteous, no, not one. Every one of us is guilty. Well, I don't know about you, but uh, I feel like i got to take a cleansing breath. <laughs> don't you kind of feel that way? Like, oh my goodness, this is, this is heavy. It's heavy stuff. Just got to... It's like I need a, a cleansing. Probably that's how many of you feel too. Or we may put up our defenses, you know. <laughs> Not going to let it go into me. I, I mean, let him talk, whatever. He's saying what he's saying. Let him say his piece, whatever. Or another defense is we deflect things. Like we're here and we're listening and we're going, I know just the person who needs to hear this message. And I wish he was here. When in reality, I think what God wants all of us to hear is it's not about the person next to you or the person you wish were here or me or anybody else. We've got to look at ourselves and own it. Own it. For all have sinned. That includes me and that includes you as well. And yet Jesus is calling out to us. And he's saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble at heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the one who says, Cast all your cares on me, for I care for you. When Jesus hung on that cross, he paid the penalty 
for your sins and for my sins. Our sins, not in part, but the whole, were nailed to the cross and we don't have to bear them anymore. Sin is so twisted. And it's only the blood of Jesus that unravels it, straightens it out, gets rid of it. He did it by dying for you and for me.